Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, the temple offers 12-day retreats, six ceremonies, um, working in the Shipibo lineage of, of ayahuasca, um, you have an opportunity to work with two to three facilitators, a, a yoga teacher, a vegetalista, which is kind of like an herbalist, and just really an amazing support staff. And it's a, it's a place I've worked at for a number of years. Uh, so I was really happy when they agreed to sponsor the show because I can really attest to the integrity of the work that they do. Um, They've been closed since uh, March of 2020, but they're scheduled to reopen in June of 2021. Um, and it's a really amazing place. If you're interested in working with ayahuasca, uh, if you've never worked with ayahuasca and you're looking to do that for the first time, or if you've worked with ayahuasca before and you're looking to to go deeper, to explore more, it's it's really an amazing place with an, um, uh, just an amazing support system, uh, amazing people working there. Uh, so I would I would highly recommend it. So for more information, you can check out their website at the templeofthewayoflight.org. Um, and then also myself and my colleague Marav Artsy, who I interviewed, I think about three podcasts ago, uh, will be running Dietas, uh, which is the one of the traditional ways that people uh, learn to work with plants through a, a prolonged period of isolation, of fasting, of, of ingesting particular plants, usually trees, uh, and then also mixed with tobacco, which was the, the lineage that we were trained in. Um, so that's a really amazing opportunity to, to really go deeper into this work, to, to learn on a more experiential level. Um, and, and whether someone has worked with plants before, the, the opportunity to really uh, open that world, or if someone has worked with plants before, to deepen that connection. So uh, we'll be running a diet uh, in the Sacred Valley of Peru in Urubamba. Um, the first one we have scheduled, I believe, is March 3rd to the 19th. And then we have another one scheduled May 1st to the 17th. Uh, and to find out more information about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org or Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. And all of those sites will be in the show notes. Uh, so that's it for that. Uh, in this episode, I had a chance and an opportunity to interview the great Dennis McKenna. Um, many of you are probably familiar with him or you've heard his name. He's really one of the pioneers of this work, uh, one of the, the guys who uh, really started doing this work uh, a number of years ago. He and his brother, Terrence McKenna, who's, who's very well known also, um, really began to open this work up to uh, a larger audience, to a bigger public, to, to really shed some light on, on these plants, uh, ayahuasca, uh, yopo, mushrooms. And uh, so it was really a, a pleasure to, to be able to have the opportunity to speak to, Dena, to, to Dennis. I, I know him through mutual friends. And um, I, I think voices like his are, are just really important. Uh, you know, hopefully for all of us, as, as we get older, there's, there's some wisdom that comes with that age. And, um, you know, he's, he's seen a lot in his life. He's gone through a lot. He's done a tremendous amount of work. Uh, he's a, an ethno-pharmacologist, and he's, he's really done a lot of writing um, and really been, a, I think, a, a really good ambassador in, in bridging uh, the world of this plant medicine to, to the broader world at large. So uh, we got in some interesting topics, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 
Uh, as always, if you're able to help to support this episode through donation, that's uh, greatly appreciated. really helps me to be able to interview these people like Dennis to create new podcasts, to, to bring you new content. Um, a really good way of doing that is through Patreon. It's a subscription service where uh, you can pledge a few dollars a month and you get different uh, benefits with each of those different tiers. So it's a really nice way to give and also give something back. Uh, things like early access to shows, bonus material, extended conversations, Q&As, uh, some special offers, things like that. Um, so there's a link in the show notes, patreon.com. Uh, there's also the option of donating directly via PayPal. There's also a link there. Um, so to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, and then if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube homepage, uh, Universe Within Podcast homepage, and subscribing to the show, uh, turning on the notification uh, bell, and liking the video. It's a small thing, but it's a, it's a really big help. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a review, and also subscribing to the show. So I think that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dennis. Looks like we are recording. <laughs> mm -hmm. So great, thank you so much, Dennis. It's uh, it's a pleasure to to finally meet. I, you know, I've I've been doing this work for about a decade, and so you know, you're I think you're really one of the the pioneers of this work. So I, I'd heard about you, I'd heard about your brother, and then I. Uh, I, I came across you predominantly through my friend Carolina, who works, uh, we used to work together at the Temple of the Way of Light, and now she works at Soltarda, and, and she does her own retreats. And then uh, also one of my new friends, uh, Luis Solerad. Um, oh, yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I met him, and uh, he spoke really highly of you. And he, he was the one who I think really kind of kept pushing me to, to reach out to you. So, uh, so I finally did. <laughs> yes, that's right. That was the connection. Yeah, Luis is a great guy. Mm. And uh, we hope to uh, be working with him on a documentary project down there that we're ramping up, uh, uh, which uh, we could talk about some of what that is if you want. But uh, where would you like to uh, take this conversation? And by the way, thank you for asking me. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. Well, so uh, a lot of people who, who follow this podcast, they, <clears throat> they've, they've done a lot of plant work there. I'm sure a lot are familiar with you, but maybe for anyone who isn't, uh, you know, I'm sure you've, you've answered this question many times, but what's just kind of a really brief uh, kind of story of, of who Dennis McKenna is and what got you interested in this work? Because, you know, I think as, as, as you as you get older, you're really now considered one of the one of the pioneers, one of the visionaries of this work. So how did that happen? Was this something that you were always interested in or just kind of one thing led to something else and you found yourself following this path? Well, a little bit of both, actually. Uh, I, uh, 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 I, I, I didn't. Well, I mean, I guess everyone stumbles in, in a way. They stumble into what becomes their life's passion, you know, and I'm no different in that sense. Uh, I have to say my brother, who's also famous, and he was four years older than me, 
he's the one that led me down the primrose path in terms of uh, our mutual interest in psychedelics. So, and that's really been the path that I've been following all my life, really, since I was a teenager. Uh, not necessarily as a practitioner of, of shamanism or anything like that, but more as a person who, you know, has has benefited from. I feel I've learned a lot from my relationship with with the psychedelics, especially. I mean, the two that are in the, at the top of my pantheon really are uh, ayahuasca, uh, which I did my doctoral work on in 1981 to 84 and that got me into it and I've been kind of on that path ever since and then the the psilocybin mushrooms the uh, uh, magic mushrooms which uh, I have uh, have been involved with even longer than ayahuasca in a certain way and how did I get into it well um uh, you know, I was a child of the 60s. I grew up, I was born in 1950. So my teenage years, adolescent years, was 1960s, which was a tur turbulent decade for sure. Maybe not quite as turbulent as the one we've been living through, but, but definitely it was a time of change. And uh, my brother was uh, studying on the West Coast. He, he went away two years before high school, before he finished high school, went to the West Coast and finished there and left me stuck in Colorado in this small town, uh, wanting to be on the West Coast where the action was, but not really able to do that. But we, we kept in close touch. And uh, um, at the time, the countercultural movement was happening. People were interested in... Uh, psychedelics and Timothy Leary was at the height of his power and, and influence and so on. So we were involved in that, you know, in, in that countercultural movement. And we, but the thing that was really, I think, a catalyst for both Terrence and myself was that was DMT. Uh, DMT was a uh, rare thing in those days. You didn't really encounter it much. It was more like the stuff of legend, you know. And uh, uh, but Terence was pretty good at working the Matrix, so he was able to find DMT, this extremely rare thing. And DMT, you've undoubtedly, well, you've experienced it in ayahuasca many times. I assume that you've probably taken it as a pure compound. It seemed like a order of magnitude more interesting, more strange, more alluring, if you will, than LSD. I mean, we and LSD was pretty much what was out there at that time. I mean, there were occasionally you'd run into peyote or mescaline or things like that, but but the psychedelic, you know, era of that time was fueled on LSD. And uh, yeah, we took LSD, we thought it was interesting, but then DMT came along and it was like, oh boy, this is really interesting. <laughs> and that kind of became a fixation for us, you know, was DMT, um, one of the things about DMT that is frustrating is if you, unless you take it as an orally active preparation as an ayahuasca, 
it's very, very short. It only lasts 20 minutes or 25 minutes at most. Just enough time to be astonished, not enough time to bring a lot back with you, other than just this, you know, sort of fading memory of something incredible just happened. And gee, I wish I could remember what it was, <laughs> that kind of thing. So so we were interested in, in finding an orally active preparation of DMT because just on the naive assumption, if it's orally active, it would last longer and we could spend more time in that space and sort of get a better handle on what was going on. Because as you know, in the intense DMT state, there's a lot going on. It's very chaotic. It's very circus-like in a certain way. We wanted to uh, just be able to spend more time that the sense that one gets when you take DMT is there's a lot of information to be acquired, often offered by seemingly intelligent entities. And, you know, they want, they have something to tell you. They have a message, but there's barely time to begin to get the message before the, the experience is winding down. So we wanted to be able to, uh, prolong that experience. And in the late 60s, the importance of the ayahuasca admixture plants and the whole, uh, uh, you know, potentiation of the DMT containing admixture plants by the, by the vine was not really understood. You know, ayahuasca was not that well studied. The admixture plants were not really, it took it was only until around that time that the importance of the admixture plants began to be recognized. So for us, we were not focused on ayahuasca. There was a paper that uh, appeared in the Harvard Botanical Museum leaflets, which was called Varola as an orally active hallucinogen by Richard Schultes, the famous ethnobotanist. And we stumbled on that paper and we thought, aha, this is it. This is the perfect orally active form of DMT that, and uh, we need to go get it. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a basic idea. Uh, you know, our experiences had maybe uh, led us into some kind of delusion. I don't know, but the we had the idea that, this was very important to understand this. And, and we were not approaching it from a spiritual angle or a, uh, you know, a uh, traditional shamanic angle, really. Uh, our perspective was, you know, both Terrence and me were, and, and I were, uh, you know, we grew up steeped in science fiction, you know, and that, was a lens through which we looked at this reality. And, and uh, you know, this psychedelics came al along and it was like, oh, you know, there are actually other dimensions out there and you can visit them. You know, these medicines will take you there. And that was our, that was kind of the lens through which we were exploring DMT and other psychedelics. So we actually thought this was a way to contact uh, <laughs> you know, non-human intelligences, whether they were extraterrestrial or not, was not so clear. But that's what motivated us to go to South America in 19, 
71 to look for this, this Witoto drug, which was called Ukuhe in Witoto. And we went to La Chirera in the Southern Colombian Amazon uh, because La Chirera was the ancestral home of the Witoto people. So that's, that's, how come we, that's how we ended up going to La Chirera in search of this very obscure uh, indigenous psychedelic. Well, then when we got to La Chirera, what was happening, I don't know if you've read my book, uh, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, uh, because it's all in there. Uh, but when we got to La Chirera, uh, we found that it's a little mission town. There had been a lot of pasture cleared around the place, and they brought in these Cebu cattle, the, the humpbacked white Indian cattle, well, that was, and it was very warm and rainy there, all this pasture. So it was a perfect uh, uh, habitat for Psilocybia cubensis, the, the globally distributed pantropical psilocybin mushroom. At La Chirera in, in the spring of 1971, we were there and the mushrooms, when we finally got to uh, La Chirera, the mushrooms were in full flush, you might say. There were, you know, practically every cow pie in the pasture had a big, beautiful cluster of mushrooms growing out of it. So when we got there, we thought, oh, well, this is great. This will be fun to play with while we're waiting for the real secret, which we assume to be this ukuhe, to show up because we'd been cautioned by an anthropologist that we'd encountered on the way in who was studying the Witoto. He said, you know, you can't just go into these villages and start talking about Ukuhe. There will be a big reaction. You won't be, you know, it will not be positive. They don't, this is, this is their, like the core of their shamanic magic. And for, you know, you hippies to come there and start talking about Ukuhe, would not be diplomatic. So we thought, well, uh, okay, that's fine. We'll go there. So when we got to Lecturer, we, we, you know, we encountered these mushrooms and uh, uh, we had very little experience with them before. I mean, uh, almost none, you know, and uh, I mean, we had encountered them on the way into La Chirera, but there were, just a couple specimens, so we had a light experience with them. But when we got to La Chirera, they were everywhere. And we had a very uh, sort of cavalier attitude towards it. We looked at that as recreation, that, you know, something we could experiment with and enjoy while we were waiting for the real secret to, to crop up, to connect with an informant about this ukuhe. Well... So we started eating mushrooms regularly, <laughs> incorporated them into our diet, essentially, because there wasn't a lot else to eat. And, uh, and they quickly took over and they made it clear that they were the real secret, <laughs> you know, and that they had a lot of information to, to give to us. And uh, uh, so it kind of hijacked the purpose of our uh our expedition in a certain way, because as the expedition had started out, it was basically this wacky 
ethnobotanical expedition. But when we actually got to La Chirera and connected with the mushrooms and started downloading all of this information about how we could effectively do an experiment, which I has come to be known as the experiment at La Chirera, uh, which I won't go into the details of, or we'd never get past it. But anyway, that was what really changed my perspective about about psychedelics and where I, I guess the point at which I crossed the threshold from being a curious young man, quite interested in this stuff, but not necessarily, uh, you know, committed to it or not, not necessarily that deep in it at some point because of the quest for the secret and all that. And DMT, I crossed the threshold from being mildly interested to being fanatic. And <laughs> I guess in some ways that's continued, although it's been a, it's been a many years since then. But uh, one of the things I uh, came away with from the, experiment from the trip to La Chirera was that I needed to go back and study pharmacology and botany and chemistry. And, you know, you would think it would be a little less, you know, that the experience would make me want to not study such hard science in a certain way to study metaphysics or philosophy. Well, I was deeply immersed in metaphysics and philosophy before we went there still am, still was at the time, but I was compelled to go back and study uh, the actual plants and the medicines and how they worked. I, I have an orientation toward being a, a detail guy. I like to know how the machinery works. So 10 years later, I went back to Peru, this time to Peru as a graduate student at UBC at the University of British Columbia, where I was enrolled. And at this, at that time, my focus was on ayahuasca. And I basically did my PhD on, uh, on ayahuasca and, uh, and also on ukuhe, but not, it was a minor component of my study. So that's how I kind of became to be, uh, you know, to do this professionally. Uh, and then, well, you know, uh, I got my PhD eventually, and I did several postdocs and uh, uh, ended up, uh, 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 you know, I, I ended up work, uh, did uh, postdoc at the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology at NIMH, uh, working on psychedelics, but not on ayahuasca. Uh, and... Uh, well, that's that's how it's played out, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was in the corporate world for a while um, uh, after I got my my uh, after I did my third postdoc at Stanford. I worked for Shaman Pharmaceuticals for a while, which was a startup company. You can tell by the name; it was ethnobotany driven drug discovery. So I worked for them, and then uh, different flirtations with the corporate world, uh, moved to Minnesota to take a job with Aveda, a cosmetics company. And I went looking for ingredients for them for 
it's a new line of cosmetics and supplements that they wanted to bring out uh, from Brazilian plants. And at that time, I also did a, a biomedical study with a, a group of colleagues, which has come to be known as the Waska Project, which we did a done with the uh, the UDV, one of the syncretic Brazilian churches that uses ayahuasca. We initiated that study in 1993 and uh, were able to get uh, some funding for it. And out of that study, I think we got about eight or 10 peer reviewed papers. And, uh, and so that actually, uh, you know, in some ways that refocused the attention of a lot of researchers on ayahuasca, which had been barely investigated at all before that. There had been, historically, there had been some investigations of its chemistry and, and so on, but but that really sparked uh, a big, fast increase in the rate of investigations of ayahuasca. I mean, if you go on PubMed, when I started that work, there was probably less than a dozen papers on ayahuasca in, in PubMed, which is this huge biomedical database. Well, now if you go on PubMed and search on ayahuasca, you'll get about 260 references will come up. So there's been a great deal of research done on it since. And uh, so that's... You know, uh, I uh, worked on, uh, uh, I, after I left Aveda, I realized uh, I couldn't be a, I couldn't work for a corporation. I'm too anti-authoritarian to work for anybody. So I set myself up as an independent consultant to the nutraceutical industry, herbal medicine industry. And I did that for several years managed to do okay with that. And then I ended up taking a, a job uh, uh, as assistant uh, professor teaching ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany at the, uh, at the University of Minnesota in the uh, what they call the Center for Spirituality and Healing, uh, which is uh, basically the alternative medicine program. So I taught those two subjects plus one in Hawaii on a regular basis called Plants and Human Affairs. And uh, and that went for a while. And then, uh, you know, I, I did that for almost, let's see, I started in, I think it was 2001. And I, I left uh, in the university in 2017. Uh, and shortly after that, we moved here to British Columbia and my wife and I in 2019 and uh, and here we are so yeah, lately what's that oh yeah yeah no yeah yeah keep going that's great yeah so now what I'm mainly involved with uh, on the professional level if I've founded a nonprofit uh, organization called the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy and it's basically just continuing the teaching. It has a lot to do with plant medicines and psychedelics, but uh, you can uh, look at it here. I'll, I'll put the uh, website up if I can. <laughs> and, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> 
And what what were some of those early, you know, ayahuasca or, or, or yopo experiences like for you? What what was it about that plan in particular that really drew you in? Well, uh, a number of things. I uh, my my initial experiences uh, when I was doing my graduate work in in Pucallpa and Iquitos were. Uh, not so strong, but strong enough to for me to realize that, you know, it was an important medicine. That there was a lot for me to learn from. And then when I was actually working on this UDV project, uh, this biomedical study, I, I uh, part of the study after we had... Uh, that in order to prepare the study, the UDV had called a conference in uh, Sao Paulo in 1991, and they invited all the researchers in the field to come there. And uh, so we did a whole three, four days of PowerPoints and presentations and discussions, you know, because they made clear what their research agenda was. They wanted to do a biomedical study so that they could uh, show that, show the regulatory authorities in Brazil, this uh, agency called CONFIN, that ayahuasca was not a dangerous drug, that it wasn't a public health menace or anything. And they wanted to uh, invite outside investigators to collect, you know, to do this study. So, they did this conference in 1991, and at the end of the conference, everyone went to one of their temples and took ayahuasca to wrap the conference up. There were about 500 people in this temple at, at that time when we had that. And I had probably my most profound, one of my most profound initial experiences with ayahuasca in that situation because I had a vision about photosynthesis which uh, in which I participated on the molecular level and uh, I guess it's the kind of vision that only a plant biochemist can really appreciate but it was very very impactful for me the realization of what an incredible miracle photosynthesis is and how it works and how it basically drives all life on earth. It's the way that, you know, the biosphere incorporates energy, solar energy from, from the cosmos and uses it for, you know, to support the proliferation of life on earth. Anyway, uh, uh, so that always stuck with me, you know, that experience. There have been other since. I just feel like... Uh, you know, uh, in 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 the in the uh, probably from the end of the nineties through the the double lots and and up to the present day, I've done a lot of ayahuasca retreats, organized retreats. Uh, I just feel like uh, ayahuasca has been a great teacher, basically, uh, and uh, I. I'm grateful to have the relationship with it that I do have. But also, uh, I mean, the mushrooms, I don't want to disrespect the mushrooms. They, are, they have also been very important. And those two were kind of my major plant allies, if you want to 
if you want to put it that way. Of course, mm-hmm. mushrooms are plants, but <laughs> we'll look o- overlook that. Yeah, so that that's the that's the situation. Yeah, when when I was talking with Luis, he said one thing you were really interested in was was Gnosticism and a lot of these ancient mystery schools. Do you think the the plant work is has kind of uh, kind of intrigued you in that way of of maybe seeing that that some of this this plant work or the ceremonial aspect was something that was really an integral part of of these traditions like Gnosticism and the the early mystery schools? Yes, definitely. Um, that's what the McKenna Academy is. Uh, I, I, uh, I promoted as a 21st century mystery school uh, modeled after Eleusis in a certain way because the plant medicines are central. They're teaching tools, essentially. I mean, sometimes I say uh, the McKenna Academy will be the first psychedelic university in 1500 years and not all the faculty will be human. <laughs> so, so, but, uh, you know, in my in terms of my own experience, some of my, my most satisfying experiences in, in my career have been when I've been teaching. And uh, so since I left academia, I decided to go ahead and just start my own damn academy and, <laughs> and continue that process. So that's, that's what uh, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy is about. It's not solely exclusively focused on, on, on psychedelics as such, but more like an open-ended uh, curiosity about mystery of being, I guess you could put it, you know, just the, the uh, such an improbable place, what such an improbable situation that we find ourselves in, which when you think about it is pretty amazing. So the Academy is a, it's a vehicle for investigating those kinds of things, a platform for looking into that. And as you know, you have lots of experience with ayahuasca yourself. And you know that uh, one of the big takeaways that people get from ayahuasca and other psychedelics too, but ayahuasca seems to be more special in this respect, is this profound understanding of our relationship with nature, you know, and a, and a perception that we are out of sync with nature. And that's where a lot of our problems are stemming from, you know, the fact that we have gotten out of harmony with nature and, you know, the Western consciousness, the Western mind in a certain sense, particularly the Western mind has gotten poisoned by this notion that we own nature, that it exists just for us to exploit and, uh, and dominate and rather than nurture. And I think that, uh, you know, we're seeing the consequences of that attitude as we basically set about destroying the, the, the planetary systems that keep, keep things in balance, you know, the atmospheric, uh, composition, the you know the parameters of the ocean that keep it 
keep it uh, hospitable to life. All of these things, you know, uh, the biosphere is a huge equilibrium system, but its its equilibrium is not infinite. You can push it. You can push it out of balance and. If you don't push too far, it will reassert itself, you know, and the planet has an incredible way of healing itself. But if you push it too far, then the systems become broken and they cannot reassert themselves. They can't reestablish that equilibrium. And we're right at the cusp where exactly that is happening. Uh, you know, we're beginning to push some of these parameters to the point where they will not be able to recover. And ayahuasca and these other things are frantically sending us a message that, you know, we basically have got to wake up, you know, to what we're doing. And then we have to wise up, you know, we have to, uh, once we get awake to it and acknowledge what's going on, then the question is, what can be done and what can we do to try to mitigate this situation? How can we reestablish this? <coughs> Excuse me. How can we reestablish this symbiotic partnership with nature that we've gotten away from? As we've gotten more and more estranged from nature, we've lost that. And, uh, you know, as a result, the you know, we are putting the the entire we're putting our own species, but the entire planet into peril. You know, by by continuing down the path that we're that we're going down. You know, so we have to wake up to what's happening, and then we have to wise up. You know, and change things, and it it's hard. You know, but I I do think that uh, psychedelics are. Uh, are catalysts uh, to this process. You know, I think that uh, I, I'm not somebody who says that, oh, if everyone just took psychedelics, everything would be fine. You know, I don't think it's quite that simple, but I think that they are, they're tools to help us learn what our right relationship to nature should be. You know, they can give us that insight as a person who spends time at the Temple of the Way of Light, you see many people come there and they come with their baggage or their intention or whatever it is that they're hoping to get by coming there. Many of them undergo transformations. Many of them benefit, you know, and I'd say probably most people who come to that kind of situation, they they get what they what they wanted, you know, at the deepest part of their spirit. And that's great. But the question is then, what do you do with that lesson? What do you do? You know, I'm sure you've, you've heard the phrase, the real work begins after you go home from the retreat. You know, how do you change your life? How do you walk differently in the world and impact, you know, your presence in the world to hopefully shift it to be a positive influence, you know? So, uh, so that's, that's the thing you, you, you know, from the psychedelics, you can get these insights and these, these uh, new understandings of our relationship, but that's only half the problem, half, half the challenge. The other half is 
once uh, having gotten that, how do you change? You know, and I, I think that's something we all grapple with. And I'm not claiming that I've done it. You know, I mean, I'm still working on it. I think everybody's working on it. My my feeling is with, uh, you know, with uh, shamanism and, and these any of these spiritual technologies, you, you know, uh, a, a primary requirement is humility, mm. you know, and a primary, uh, if you can, if you get to a point where you think you've got it all figured out, you don't have it figured out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you, you don't have it figured out. Yeah. You have to completely, uh, you know, you have to reach a point that's almost like being a newborn. You have you reach a point where you have to acknowledge, I really know nothing, you know, and, and when then learning can begin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, arrogance and assuming that, we have it figured out, which a lot of, which, for example, this is one of my criticisms of science, you know, even though I am a scientist, I think that, I think that science can be very arrogant in, in certain ways. And as a result, blind to things that don't fit into its paradigm, don't fit into its uh, current understanding of how it views the way things are and so rejects it out of hand that's not helpful you know uh because you know you're 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 essentially just dismissing a certain aspects of reality and experience that that don't fit your preconceptions and the whole point of science is that it's supposed to push against the unknown it's a probe it's a tool for examining what we do not know you know, and, and in order to do that, you have to admit that there's a lot we don't know. <laughs> Hence, many other things to be to be learned. Yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things about plant work is it it, it often really shows us, as you said, that there's potentially this other world, this other way of looking at things, and and it really I think shifts people's perspective and. And uh, yeah, I think all of that you said is really important. That humility is, I think, so important and gratitude. And um, you, you mentioned this idea of Ulysses, uh, you know, these mystery schools. What what do you think was happening in these mystery schools? And and because it's something I'm fascinated in, too. And uh, it seems like it was an integral part of, of, of cultures all over the world. I mean, I think not just what we would consider more indigenous cultures these days, but even at the root of, of the culture, you know, for example, you and I come from this, this, uh, this more European uh, background of, of, you know, it's, it's basis in, in, in Greek uh, schools and probably even before that Egyptian schools. So what do you think was happening in, in these places like Ulysses? Uh, because obviously this, this plant work, um, potentially was an integral part of that, but it seems like something that's never really even discussed, even by kind of mainstream academics. Well, you're right. Mainstream academics have won't touch this with a 10-foot pole, you know, <laughs> because you're talking basically about heresies, you know, under the, the doctrines of the church and so on. But that's changed. There's a remarkable new book that's just come out by uh, this young classicist, Brian 
Murarescu, I think. Murarescu, I think. Yeah, the immortality key. I, I finished that. The immortality key. And mm-hmm. I've been reading that book. Uh, I hope to do a podcast with him. I think, I mean, that reflects a lot of scholarship. He's really looked into this. And he's he's built on the original idea that Carl Ruck and uh, Albert Hoffman and Wasson put forth in the road to Eleusis, which was basically that the Eleusinian sacrament was some kind of an ergotized drink made from ergotized barley and that every all these pilgrims that would come to Eleusis, everyone who was anyone in Greek society would come at some point during their lives to have this experience, which was transformative, which they were forbidden to actually talk about, supposedly. And that was the kernel of the uh, sort of the, the, you know, the basis of the uh, Greek religions, the, the, the religion of Demeter and Persephone. Well, you've read the book, right? But what Brian has done is showed that this is just one example of a whole tradition of sacramental use of these ergotized or these these not necessarily always ergotized but these essentially spiked beers that there was a fermentation culture that goes back possibly to Gobekli Tepe 13,000 years and in the modern instance, when you go to the Eucharist, you know, the precursors of what we think about in the Eucharist in the first and second centuries AD, you know, uh, this was crazy stuff these people were doing. I mean, this was effectively, you know, these ritual, uh, you know, the, these ritual sites were experimenting with uh, all sorts of plant remedy, plant ingredients, you know, not just one, but apparently multiple ones. So, uh, and then all of that, uh, and that was a period of great experimentation in the first and second centuries AD. But as the, uh, as Catholicism, Christianity became the the state religion, uh, you know, they essentially abjured all that, They, they, that became like forbidden knowledge to talk about. Uh, and then they essentially just, you know, state-sponsored Christianity was, you know, kind of lost its spiritual punch, you know, literally its spiritual punch because the the sacrament, the Eucharist, as presented officially in Christianity is a, you know, pretty boring affair compared to what these people were were actually, uh, you know, consuming in in these uh, these early Christian or as as Brian calls the paleo Christian contexts, you know, uh, people were uh, consuming these sacraments uh, because they had an effect, you know, because they did something for them. They actually did have, uh, you know, a revelation which. He claims, and I, I think there's some truth to this, that this, this at least in, in Eleusis, this was uh, regarded as a preparation for death, you know, that, that you could die and be reborn and people would come and they would have this, this psychedelically induced death rebirth experience. 
leaving with the understanding that death is not death. You know, I mean, whether it was or not is not clear, but that was that was what they what they gained from these experiences. So then they had no reason to fear death. And when it became incorporated into Christianity, very much the same kind of things, you know, the same kind of perceptions were, you know, were applied. So um, I guess the, uh, the hard thing for people that are, you know, more uh, when they take a more conventional view of history is to admit that, yes, in fact, psychedelics are probably at the very center of spirituality in the Western tradition, going back much further than Christianity, much more, much older than Christianity. And when Christianity came along, these pagan practices were basically incorporated into Christianity. It was a continuation of that. It wasn't something that radically broke from what was going on before. So, um, yeah. 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 And it, it seems like such a fascinating thing because, uh, I mean, these are common motifs uh, all over the world. Uh, I mean, even ayahuasca, it's it's a Quechua word that, that means vine of the dead or vine of the soul. And with iboga, which is another really old tradition, you, you classically, you would have two ceremonies. The first is the death ceremony and then the, the rebirth. And you see it in, in Vedic literature with you know, that this knowledge came, you know, according to the Vedas from, from this, this mixture called Soma. And in, in the Zoroastrian culture, they, Soma is, is Hauma in, 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 in the, the, the language, you know, in Farsi, they, they don't pronounce the S, they pronounce it like an H. So Soma becomes Hauma. And that's what Zoroaster took and also had revelation. And it's just, you know, in, in, in the Amazon, these plants are described the same way. And it's, it's so fascinating. And it, it just seems like it would really reshape our our view of of not just history but the world we live in if we realize that at the essence of the cultures we come from is this kind of sacramental ritualistic work of of really understanding what it is to die and and in that way what it means to truly live and and i think like you said you know understanding our place within nature within the earth within the cosmos and and trying to find that balance which again, seems to be one of the really common motifs of, of any religion or spirituality is this idea of balance, of union, of harmony. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I guess that uh, people, you know, who reject this notion, I mean, the evidence is there. And I think, uh, you know, people who reject it it's basically a situation of, well, you know, we don't want to attribute our uh, most uh, cherished spiritual practices to, you know, a bunch of people getting loaded on psychedelics. But in fact, that is what it comes down to. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in my view, there's nothing wrong with it. In the church, you know, the church was invested to, they had, they became invested in the idea that genuine personal uh, spiritual experience was, was not for everybody, you know, that, that the masses couldn't really handle that. And, and the, these practices with the early Eucharist, with Eleusis and so on, was kind of the opposite of that, that, that these experiences should be available to anyone. 
almost as though it's a right to have these experiences, whereas the church became, you know, very protective of the knowledge initially, and finally itself abandoned the knowledge so that, or, you know, they so suppressed the knowledge that, uh, you know, the Eucharist became essentially a hollowed out parody of itself, you know, because it didn't really pack any punch at all. You know, there was, you know, which is one reason probably when, when during the Inquisition, uh, in the 1500s, when the conquistadors found the the mushroom cults in Mexico, the the mycologist cults, and the the mushroom and the uh, the Aztec word for the mushroom was Teonanacatl, the f- the flesh of the gods, right? The Inquisition people were so incensed by this because they viewed it as blasphemy, you know, as a, as a blasphemous parody of the Eucharist, you know, uh, it's like, no, no, you know, we only, we have the body of Christ. You can, you can't claim this, but in fact, the, uh, the traditional, uh, sacraments were much more impactful because they did have the mushrooms, you know, and the Christian Eucharist had, a placebo essentially so that that's one reason why they they suppress these cults particularly vigorously you know because uh it just can't be just can't be allowed you know we have the franchise on the the flesh of god you know and they were they were uh well, anyway, even though those traditions were much older than Christianity, at least to 3000 BC and possibly much older. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a, I guess it's typical of spiritual traditions in a certain way or spiritual practices that there's a certain jealousy uh, and a tendency to... Uh, you know, promote your brand over everyone else's and say, you know, we have the truth. You know, those people over there, they're charlatans, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not genuine, you know. And uh, the fact is, again, this comes back to, I think, the uh, the big lesson. One of the main things that I get from ayahuasca is that it always brings up the limitations on our knowledge, you know, and uh, how it, I mean, either gently or sometimes not so gently, it always reminds me, just remember how little you know, you know, there's no room for arrogance here. You have so much to learn, you have, you know, so little, so don't get on a high horse about it, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, that ayahuasca, and, and of course that goes, that goes against the impulse of many spiritual traditions because they're looking for a formula. They're looking for a set of doctrines or doc- documents that embody the truth, like the Christian scriptures, for example. The truth is here. If you depart from it, then you're a heretic, you know. So free inquiry, especially of the experimental kind, is not encouraged. You know, only the priests get to have, you know, genuine spiritual experiences. And even that has been expunged from Christianity. And the priests are not, 
in the sacristy or something taking psychedelic beers together or psychedelic wines. I, maybe some are, maybe some of the newer age ones, but as a rule, you know, the, the, uh, the Eucharist is a symbol of something that may have existed at one point as an actual pharmacon, as, as Brian calls it. So, uh, but now it's not. It's just a hollowed out symbol. And I think that this is one reason that there is such interest on, uh, on the part of many people in these indigenous psychedelics like ayahuasca, why people come to places like the Temple of the Way of Light or other retreat centers. In my experience, these are not these are not people looking for kicks. These are not thrill seekers. These are people who are looking for a genuine, something that is a genuinely personal, meaningful experience, you know, and they're finding that organized religions is just a hollowed out shell, you know. It cannot furnish that for most people or for many people. They just find no uh, spiritual resonance there. You know, these are like hollowed out traditions that don't even apply anymore. People don't relate to. So people want to have their own personal experiences. And that's, I think that's why people seek out uh, to experience things like ayahuasca in these more or less traditional uh group contexts, you know. But then having said that, of course, you know, the, the very phenomenon of uh, ayahuasca tourism, of Westerners coming to Peru to, to drink ayahuasca, the impulse uh, is genuine. People are, are looking for some spiritual satisfaction. But in the larger context, that also really impacts the sort of socioeconomic context of ayahuasca. I don't have to tell you, you've had lots of experience, but the ayahuasca tourism thing has really changed practices, you know, uh, traditional practices, perhaps in better ways, in some ways, perhaps in worse ways. It's certainly introduced economic factors into it uh, that were not there before, uh, you know, um, so people say, well, you know, some people say ayahuasca tourism is terrible. It's, it's, uh, destroying the traditions. It's depleting the resource, uh, you know, and it's just a bad thing. Uh, I disagree with that. I think there are, I think like anything else, there are, uh, negative and positive things about it. I mean, I think that people's, desire to connect with something genuine on a spiritual level should not be should not be denied uh, what the plants can do to help us reorient our our perspectives on nature that's a good thing but then there are also problems with the with the uh, with the spiritual tourism industry if you want to put it that way temple of the way of light and others I'm not singling them out for criticism actually i think they're doing a pretty good job from what i've heard of but 
one of the big issues that's uh, that's right in front of everyone right now involved in this is, uh, uh, it, you know, what are we doing to the resource? What are we doing to the sustainable sources of ayahuasca in the admixture plants? Because now that's a problem. You know, there are pressure. There's pressure on on uh, on the uh, the plants uh, ayahuasca is not quite an endangered species yet but it may be soon so in some sense maybe it's good that covid has slowed that down you know it, it gives us a chance to reorient and rethink this thing a little bit yeah so what um <clears throat> with your school the the McKenna Academy what do you what are you looking to create with that is it is it kind of drawing on on a lot of these traditions from around the world and and trying to create a, a kind of a, a new system or a new path based on these these traditions to to really bring forth like a a new way of learning or a, a new way of teaching uh yeah all of that i mean uh due to covid our uh, you know, our program also has had to change in response to this. Originally, what we wanted to do was was to do physical conferences and physical retreats, which we had been doing before this, before COVID came along. And uh, the idea basically was that the academy could be a place for learn for natural philosophy. You know not just focused on, on psychedelics, but focused on a broader understanding, a broader uh, inquiry or study of us, our species and our place in nature and our relationship to nature and anything else of interest that might come on the radar, just a place, you know, a place where people can come I sometimes say it's not it's not someplace you come to we're not we don't exist to tell you what to think we tell you we help you learn how to think you know and you can make your own mind up about these things so the idea is to foster broad and uh uh you know broadly based and uh overarching interest in 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 natural philosophy which is what science was before it evolved in before it became preoccupied with quantitation and reductionism because you know the sacrifice that science made is it has to it's, it's difficult for it to acknowledge there are other ways of knowing you know that are just as valid but not scientific so within the umbrella of the academy, we welcome both the science and the meta science, if you want to, if you want to put it that way. And but because we have not been able to do physical retreats, we have been doing them uh, in the Sacred Valley for uh, well since about 2012. But COVID put a stop to all that, so we've had to. Uh, pivot and develop a, an online presence, which we're, which we're doing now. We're trying to do that while we wait around and see what's going to happen with the pandemic. Uh, hopefully we can start doing events in the Sacred Valley uh, or other places later this year. We just, like you said, everything's up in the air 
Mm-hmm. We keep thinking it's going to be over, and then new things come up. So we'll see. We'll see. But in the meantime, we're doing these online things, and uh, and that's working out. Ideally, you know, if and when things open up, I mean, hopefully when rather than if, but uh, what would that look like? I mean, if someone was interested in, in coming to, to the academy, what would, like, what would someone's options be? How would that, that look like? Is it, is it kind of like a long-term school where one would enroll for a number of years and, and take courses and go for workshops or... Yeah, all of those things. I mean, we we're we're you know we're making it up as we go along. <laughs> you know, originally the the focus was more on doing these retreat type events and doing conferences on different topics of interest, uh, and we were thinking that a lot of that could happen in the Sacred Valley. Uh, although it can happen in other places too. And these are basically, uh, a lot of these events would be places where you could take ayahuasca or other uh, plant medicines. Uh, And, uh, you know, we still want to do that. But right now we're we're just focused on uh, delivering the product via the web, delivering these educational opportunities uh, through the website. And uh, if you if you take a look, we have you can look at some of the past events we've done. Uh, uh, you know, we did in April uh, last year. We did uh, a, a, a several week series called "A Tribute to Terence," and in honor of my brother, he died uh, twenty years ago last April. So this was a, a way to honor him and uh, revisit some of the things that uh, people were familiar with from our career. Basically, it was a lot of, mostly it was conversations of me and people that Terrence knew, sort of fireside chat uh, uh, formats, which people really seemed to resonate to. In the fall, we did a three-day conference, virtual conference on symbiosis which turned out to be mostly about permaculture as it turned out just by the people that participated. And that was pretty successful. And then this year we're trying to get a podcast series going and, uh, and possibly some other, uh, we have a project uh, that we're, we're a long-term project that we're working on with uh, my colleagues at, at UNAP in the Quitos, the knowledge uh, preservation project, uh, in particular, to work with a, uh, a scientist there that I've worked with for over forty years, Juan Ruiz. You may know him. He was the uh, curator, or well, he is the curator of the herbarium at the university. And uh, have you ever visited him or run into him? I haven't. I've I've heard the name. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess Juan Ruiz is a pretty common name, but he's an amazing guy. He's got one foot in science and one foot in traditional medicine, and he has incredible knowledge about the plants and how they're used and what they're used for. And uh, you know, he's he's like a walking library, but he doesn't write any of it down. So part of what we're trying to do is document. We're trying to do a documentary series on Juan. Uh, 
and what he knows and how he fits into, you know, the context of his local scene there, you know, and try and document what he knows while he is still around, you know, and I mean, he's not that much younger than I am, but then I'm not that young. So, so, you know, time's running out for us. So one thing we want to do is do that. And then we actually have a longer ambition, a, a bigger ambition, which is to, uh, work with the herbarium there and uh, turn it into a world-class resource for botanical, ethnobotanical researchers in the Amazon. And part of the, the long-term vision is to be able to digitize the herbarium, to scan all the specimens and put them up on the web, open access, link them to other scientific databases and and turn it into a, a tool where people can learn about these plants and their habitats, but also, uh, uh, you know, in the process of creating this resource, you create a rationale to preserve the plants and the knowledge and the resource. So, uh, you know, it, to, to try and create this as a, as a, uh, learning platform for ethnobotanical researchers, or really anyone with an interest in the, uh, you know, in the Amazonian flora for whatever, whatever, wherever they're coming from, whether it's ethnobotany or agroforestry or whatever, you know. So, so that's the idea of this UNAP knowledge preservation project. Uh, and we're we're just in the earliest stages of this. In fact, Luis is uh, probably going to help with this. Is is he he is around the Quitos now? I'm not sure. Are you in touch with him? Uh, I am. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he, he's working at a center there, and um, yeah, it sounds like things are things are opening up. Very good. Very good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well. What's he working at if all the centers are closed? Well, the the center he he went and he he dieted. That was the first time he he dieted plants, and he he went to a particular center, and they were closed for most of the pandemic, but they reopened recently, and he's going back. Uh, I, I think kind of in a facilitation role, maybe doing a little production work for them, and and just kind of getting his hands wet in a way, because I think it's it's work he would eventually like to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. So, so I'm hoping to get down there sometime. We've got uh, people who will be working on this project on the ground. Uh, uh, one fellow, a graduate student at the University of Hawaii, I was on his, his uh, committee and he just finished his PhD working with uh, Shipibo communities down around Pucallpa and uh, from the perspective of uh, identifying what he calls cultural keystone species, of which ayahuasca is one, and how do these cultural keystone species fit into the preservation of traditional practices and that sort of thing? So uh, he's there, and he would be a, he'll play a big part in this, uh, and we'll see where it goes. We need to raise a lot of funds to do this. We have some commitment for it, but uh, 
it's going to be an expensive project, but we have, I guess we have, a, I guess you could say we have enough to do the initial uh, filming and documentation that will then be used to uh, leverage more support to do the next phase in the project. Oh, wonderful. <clears throat> well, I know we're, we're coming a uh, close up on our time. Um, one, one question I, I know a lot of people have is, you know, I think one of the really interesting things you're doing is building upon these traditions. And, you know, as you said, these mystery schools, which are, are really rooted in, in these, these ancient traditions all around the world. One of the ways in which this work seems to be going forward is, is people may refer to it as like psychedelic assisted therapy, using the, the alkaloids uh, and, and working in more of a clinical setting. What are your thoughts on that? And, and I'm, I mean, like you said, there, there's a good and a bad to everything. How do you see kind of that work moving forward versus at the same time guarding these traditions and, and all of the things that they they really honor and, and really, you know, it kind of created this process in the beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, what I would like to see happen, uh, uh, this is part of uh, this is a big part of the Academy's mission is to bring this traditional knowledge and the scientific knowledge together in a way to create a new synthesis that takes, you know, the best from both and probably the, uh, you know, the psychedelically assisted therapies of the future will look a lot like shamanism, you know, and it will look more like that than they were then they will resemble a clinical setting with uh, people in white coats and and that sort of thing, and I think that I think that uh, this may be a way out of the conundrum because as these plants are decriminalized, there is a, a movement toward decriminalization of most psychedelics in many communities in the states and also now around the world. The idea that these things should not be prohibited. They never should have been prohibited. They, you know, I mean, the very idea is absurd that you would want to prohibit these things. People are waking up to that. And so what I think may be happening is that on a community level, as, uh, as some of these cities pass these, these decriminalization uh, resolutions and the plants become legal to use in that area, then in many communities, there are existing psychedelic centers. It's just that they're underground. They have been operating under the radar for a long time. But if they can come out into the open and operate openly, then you can reverse then you can change the dynamic. So from people going to South America to find the medicine, find a retreat center, have these experiences, you can turn that around, bring the medicine to North America or Europe or wherever, and let it be administered through these centers and work with indigenous people to both produce the medicine and also help uh, these centers learn how to administer it, but but without without the economic and and other uh, impacts on on the you know these fragile cultures in South America to minimize that to essentially instead of taking people down there, bring the medicine to North America where people can experience it. 
that may mitigate some of the pressure on the plant resources. It may, it will produce economic benefits for the indigenous people, but you know, maybe in a more equitable way. Uh, and uh, you know, it will be a, a way that uh, these these things can the benefits of these plants can be brought to the world because the world clearly needs them, but with while preserving the in, integrity and the, and the cultural uh, coherence of indigenous communities. So that's that's the idea. Uh, before it's always the you know the Western culture that impacts the the indigenous cultures. Maybe this is a step toward turning that around, and uh, we'll see if that's practical. But that that's what I would like to see. I see that as a a uh, solution that's kind of midway between what you see now, which is the you know the totally traditional use in South America or wherever of these things and the, the clinical, uh, the clinical use. There's a place for both, of course, but I think there's a place for a middle, uh, some, some kind of model that takes from both sides and is basically a new paradigm, a new model. So that's what I would hope will happen in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last podcast I did, I, I interviewed, a. Uh... Uh, a guy I work with, his name is Amika, and he comes from a group called the Tubu, who are in the, the Vopes uh, region of the Colombian Amazon in the Apaporis uh, River region, and a really fascinating guy. And, uh, you know, according to him, his people actually predicted the coming of the Spanish and the, 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 the wiping out of this traditional knowledge. But also in their legends is, as he would put it, the creating of a new Maloka where, where knowledge is brought from all four directions to, to, to create this kind of new earth in a way or this new Maloka. And uh, I find that very fascinating. Is that something you can foresee where kind of this middle way of, of bridging these indigenous traditions with, with more you know, modern culture, where this actually, in this, in this spirit of a mystery school, where this once again becomes a, a kind of a, a part of people's lives, where there is this emphasis on, on natural science and, you know, even you know, this idea of uh, true liberal arts, you know, really learning all of these different arts in, in, in that kind of classic Greek way of that Pythagorean way of really studying in depth all of these ways to really be a, a complete or whole human being. And, and this, this plant work being one of the, the, the real pillars in that to, to create this harmony in, in earth. Yeah, that's exactly it. You, you couldn't have, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> That's exactly it, and hopefully these these centers scattered around they can be like their own kind of mystery school, but under the general uh, rubric of uh, and and you know I, I think it will be a very different thing if if these centers can operate out in the open, then effectively every community could have a a it doesn't have to be focus entirely on psychedelics, but it can be like a wellness center or, you know, a retreat center among which psychedelics are on the menu. Psychedelics are an option for people that want it. I think it could really go very far toward healing our, uh, not only individuals, but our society, our communities. 
And, you know, uh, all you have to do is look at the political situation now and realize how much we need that, you know. I mean, everybody is at each other's throats and it's uh, it's really a pity. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's disturbing that, that uh, this is happening and it seems to be accelerating so, so fast. Uh, you know, um, uh, I, I used to say that, uh, you know, I still feel that psychedelics are one of the catalysts that can help us evolve beyond this stage. But I don't think it's the only one. I think, I, I mean, I think in itself, it's not sufficient. You know, uh, we have a lot of, we have a lot of evolving to do and a lot of co-evolving to do. And that's what these plants have always been there for us. You know, I mean, who knows why they make these alkaloids, <laughs> you know, for their own purposes. But the fact is we find them useful because they make these alkaloids and they make us have interesting thoughts, interesting experiences. So that's a symbiotic relationship. And uh, hopefully uh, we can learn enough so that we, you know, I mean, they've, they've always been there. They've always been able to offer the lesson in a certain way. We haven't always been willing to hear it or listen to it or interiorize it. But maybe that's what's changing. I mean, that was, you know, it, it's hard to do that when these things are all prohibited. But now... The, the legal framework is changing. So I think that, uh, as you say, I think that uh, these should just be things, the, the, you know, psychedelic experiences under well-controlled conditions, uh, well-orchestrated set and settings and so on with, with uh, practitioners that are compassionate and ethical can be a tremendous uh, force for, changing the world in a, in a better way. And, you know, we're overdue for that. You know, we really need to wake up and we need to wake up fast because there's not a lot of time left. Uh, if you look at the rate of the way that the, uh, basically the, the ecosystem on a planetary scale is, is, uh, you know, it, it's not good. It, it's been disabled. I mean, it's not too late, but at a certain point, it will be too late. So hopefully, we can we can get wise. We these and these plant medicines may be a catalyst for that. So that's yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, wonderful, Dennis. Is there anything you'd you'd like to talk about that we didn't address? No, I think. Uh, I think we pretty well covered it. Okay. So. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your time and it's, it's been a pleasure uh, getting to meet you a little bit and uh, you know, and also just to really acknowledge all of the work you've done uh, throughout your life with, with plants and ethnopharmacology. And I think there's a beautiful quote. I, I think it was by uh, Isaac Newton, who, you know, is a fascinating guy because he, he really, for me embodies kind of this balance between what we would consider kind of modern day science, but at the same time, he was an occultist. He was a, he was a guy coming from a mystery school and Absolutely. that's actually where he said he got most of his knowledge from. And, and he has this quote, which is, you know, if, if I've done anything great, it's, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants and, uh, 
And I think people like you, you know, really are those those kind of pillars that uh, allow people like myself and, and so many others to, to really do this work. And uh, I think that's really one of the beautiful things about these plants, too, is, uh, you know, it, it, it really for me and I think for so many people, as you said, it, it creates a humility and, and a, really a respect for for everyone who's come before us and the traditions that have come before us. So, you know, really just to say thank you for for being you and all the work you've done. I, I think it's amazing. And I, I hope there's many more years where you can continue to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're really too kind, but <laughs> I'll take the compliment. Uh, so yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, let me know when you're posting so I can put it on the website somewhere and, uh, and stay in touch. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dennis McKenna. It was really a pleasure for me to be able to talk to him, pick his brain a little bit, uh, and have the chance to connect with him. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, as always, if you're able to help to support this show, that's a, a really big help. Uh, Patreon is a really good option. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, and you're able to subscribe. Uh, there's different tiers where you pay a different fee, and you get something back in return for that. So it's a really nice setup. Uh, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&A, things like that. Uh, so to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. And if you're able to do that, I deeply appreciate it. There's also the ability of uh, donating via PayPal, and there's a link in the show notes. Um, and if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube page. If you're listening via YouTube, subscribing to the channel, turning on the notification bell, and liking the video may seem like a really small thing, but it's a really big help with the algorithms. And then on the uh, audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a review. Uh, so that's it for this episode. Um, I'm not exactly sure the order of the next couple episodes, uh, but I have some interesting guests coming on, uh, an herbalist, uh, some former colleagues of mine, but I'll, I'll sort out the order in the next uh, week or so and be back with another episode soon. So thank you all so much for tuning in and I will see you all on the next episode.